más que nos merecemos. Por una educación ideal. Por el derecho a la libre expresión. Por ti, Colombia. Welcome to the first episode of What's Happening in Colombia. I'm Connor Coughlin. You're going to be hearing from myself and my partner for this project, Nick Schneeweiss. And we're going to be speaking with different members of the Colombian community to give you a better idea of what actually is happening here in Colombia. Why are the people protesting? And why have things turned so violent? In this first episode, we're speaking to a member of Temblores, an NGO focusing on human rights and social justice within Colombia. Temblores is a strong social media presence in which it posts statistics and videos in an objective manner. So we figured they'd be the perfect people to speak with first to give you, the listener, a background on Colombia's situation. We're about to dive into the episode, but there's a couple names I want to clarify just because you're about to hear them in not only this episode, but probably most of the episodes going forward. The first is Ivan Duque, or simply Duque, and he's the current president of Colombia. Secondly, there's Álvaro Uribe, who is a former president of Colombia, who many think still has a heavy influence on the decisions that are made within Colombia. So without further ado, let's jump into our interview with Amelia from Temblores, where she's going to paint the picture for us about what exactly is happening in Colombia. Can you hear us all right, Amelia? Hey, how you doing? Yes, I can hear you. How are you? Good, thanks. Just first, to fill anybody in that might be listening that doesn't really know why the protests began in the first place. The time we're talking right now, it's May 28th. It's actually the one month anniversary of when the protests began. Could you tell us a little bit about why they did begin? What was the in- initial purpose? Yeah, so uh, I think this is like why uh, protests were called, but I don't think it's the initial reason. Uh, it was a tax law reform that was going to be passed by the national government uh, and it was uh, planned by the national government. That was like the main event that started uh, the protests. But if you look a little bit in hindsight, you can see that uh, since 2019, uh, the Colombian population has been protesting, uh, a big part of the Colombian population has been protesting because of a discontent with President Duque's government. So you can see a relationship between the 2019 uh, national strike uh, that went on uh, almost for 20 days, I think, uh, in November and December 2019, and uh, this national strike that we are having uh, right now since the 28th of April. I think there's a big discontent in a, in a part of the population, uh, the Colombian population, with Duque's government because they have not kept uh, the peace treaty that was made with FARC in 2016. It has been one of the, gov- uh, the government periods with uh, most uh, killings of human rights defenders and social leaders. It has been a government where, of course, the pandemic has been uh, a big issue. It has been a government where uh, poverty has risen in Colombia. So you already have a climate that is very uh, hard for a big part of the Colombian population. You already have a discontent, a political discontent with President Duque's government and then uh, the tax law reform comes in uh, obviously being a bigger threat to people who were already on the verge of poverty, for example, in Colombia. So this sparks the fire again, I would say, of what was happening already in 2019 and in some parts of, of the country in 2020. 
I think that's that's how you can explain that this national strike has been already going on for a month, even when the tax law reform was, uh, uh, I don't know how, how you say, um, la tumbaron? Como... They, yeah, they took out the reform, they axed it, yeah, they got rid of it, yeah. Yeah, even, even when the reform was taken out, uh, you can still see protesters going on the streets. And I think this also has to do a lot with the way that this government has been treating uh, protests, how this government has been talking about people who are manifesting on the streets, how this government has been creating a war uh, discourse around the protests. So I think this also fuels people's uh, discomfort because they not only have uh, an initial discontent, but they now feel unheard and uh, they feel that their protest is being illegitimized. Uh, I don't know if that's a word. Yeah. Illegitimized, maybe? You know what, I'm they not sure, like but but we understand. If it's not a word, it's, it's still going to be clearly understood. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay. They feel like their their protest is not legitimate to the eyes of the government. So I think that is also a very big fuel for this to go on even further, uh, because we are facing a government that does not hear opposition and most importantly, a government that criminalizes opposition, which is very important. Uh, and I think it's very important if we are uh, seeing this from the viewpoint of a democracy and of what a democracy should be. Yeah, I guess going in on this, have you personally seen the change in the popular mentality when it started being that it was for the reform and now more people, it seems like the conversation or the dialogue has really changed to be talking about false positives. And if you could enlighten us to what is a false positive, how it's still continuing with the government of Duque and kind of give us some information on that. Yeah, so we, we can uh, look historically where Duque comes from, for example. Uh, we have had in Colombia a problem with inner conflict for, I think, since uh, colonial times, right? It is a country founded on, on war, on injustice and on colonization. So from there you have the start. <laughs> but most kind of recently uh, in Colombia we had a very big uh, problem not only with what is commonly known outside of Colombia as guerrillas uh, such as FARC but we also had a very big problem with paramilitaries so um, around the, the 80s and 90s the paramilitary groups became stronger and uh, they began to form of course, these were very violent groups. They were groups on the margins of the of what is uh, lawfully uh, permitted. And uh, these groups were, were extremely violent, seeking to end with any form of leftist views in the country and with any form of views that could be related to the guerrillas. So uh, these paramilitary, paramilitary groups became very... Uh, bloodthirsty, I would say, uh, towards uh, populations not only that had left its views, but populations that uh, they saw as unwanted to the national order. For example, the LGBTQ community, uh, for example, sex workers, for example, people who used drugs, etc. 
of course the the people who would uh, be protesting in these protests would uh, very much fit in with uh, what a paramilitary group would see as unwanted on the society right especially with what duque's government has been calling these protesters as for example vandals or terrorists right so uh with that uh, kind of language you have an explicit target to paramilitary groups paramilitary groups in colombia have uh, been said to become fewer they have said to become weaker uh, have been said to become weaker especially by some past government's negotiations with the main paramilitary groups. But with the Duque government, we have seen that these paramilitary groups have started getting stronger again. And there, in that point, it is important to remember that Álvaro Uribe, which, uh, who is Duque's mentor and who is the, the leader of Duque's political party, has been said to have very strong nexus with the paramilitary groups in the past. So we have this climate where Álvaro Uribe is actually being investigated for having a close relationships with paramilitary groups in the past. And now we have Duque's government where paramilitary groups have become stronger, not only during these protests, but also in past months and years, being, for example, supposedly responsible for some of the killings of social justice leaders and of human rights defenders in the country. So we have all this climate and then we have protests where we have started seeing people being, for example, killed by civilians armed inside of white luxurious vans. And we have seen this pattern going on over and over again. We have seen pamphlets coming supposedly from paramilitary groups threatening people who are protesting, threatening people who are, for example, blocking uh, main roads. So we have this climate. And then in the protests, we also see people starting to disappear. A lot of families being worried about their familiars not turning up. Uh, right now, the um, Defensoría del Pueblo has around 120-something cases of people who are disappeared right now and who the government or the state is, is trying to find. And then we also have the false positive kind of phenomenon. So there has been, of course, in the past, a lot of documentation and a lot of investigation about paramilitary groups having nexus with the public force in Colombia. So, for example, you can uh, see the case of Operación Orión, which was done in Medellín, uh, where there was an intervention of a whole neighborhood done by the military, a very violent intervention done by the military. And then it has been found out that paramilitary groups had a very clear role helping out the military, point out to young men uh, especially, and either kill them, uh, disguise disguising them as members of the guerrilla, or judicialize them, disguising them as, as well as uh, members of terrorist groups or of the guerrilla groups. So in uh, one of the investigations being done on Álvaro Uribe, there has been a very big part that has to do with the false positives which were done by members of the military and supposed or allegedly with uh, help of members of the paramilitary groups where they pointed out to or singled out young men and disguised them as guerrilla leaders in order to show 
results, right? So they would say, we have done this operation and we have caught, or there has been these casualties of supposedly guerrilla uh, group members or FARC members, for example. So they would show these kind of results saying, uh, we, we have caught five members of a guerrilla organization in this place of Colombia. And this, these men would be, uh, would go to jail basically for many years, some of them uh, being completely innocent and they were just framed as uh, guerrilla leaders. Of course, the ones who were killed, uh, their mothers, for example, have been fighting legal battle for many years now, trying to get to the bottom of what happened with their sons who were found with uh, military uh, guerrilla uniforms and killed, but who they had no proof and who they knew were not guerrilla members. Right. So Uribe is right now being investigated for being the one who gave the order for more than 6,000 people who were killed or disappeared as a false positive. This is also obviously one of the very big things that came out uh, recently and that people are protesting against. In this protest, we are seeing the false positive phenomenon, not in the killings, but yes, in the legal side of the false positive phenomenon. So many, many, many people are trying to be judicialized by police officers as instigators of vandalism, instigators of violence during the protests as uh, terrorists even during the protest when they were just people who were um, materializing the right to a social protest which of course is a fundamental right in a democracy so uh, people who were just manifesting peacefully and in their whole right to manifest peacefully are trying to be judicialized by police officers and by the some of uh, the people in the judicial system in Colombia as terrorists, as instigators, as um, for vandalism charges. And this, of course, is also a false positive phenomenon in the legal aspect of things. Yeah, the false positive is definitely something we're going to continue looking into and speaking with other people about because I think that's a very deep subject, of course. But before that, you mentioned um, roughly 130 missing people. I think that would kind of sound surprising to a lot of people in other countries. They may not really know exactly what that means. What is the assumption with these missing people? So with missing people, what Temblores has seen in our work, we mostly in this protest, our role has been around the police violence uh, subject, which is, of course, the subject that we have the, the capacity to talk about and to investigate in our organization. Around police violence, what we have uh, seen, we started getting a lot of police violence reports, a lot of people who were trying to denounce police violence in our platforms, who were trying to access our pre-legal clinic because of police violence during the protests. And with all of this group of people, we also started getting a lot of people who were looking for missing members of their family or for missing friends. This is obviously very, very preoccupying. But what we have seen in Temblores is that there is a lot of different phenomenons taking place with the missing people. 
One of them, which has been used by the government to say, oh, this is nothing, uh, this is just people being exaggerated or this is just people being silly, is that many of the missing people have turned up in either police stations, penitentiary centers, or they just have turned up after three days after being in a police vehicle for I don't know, 36 hours. So these people are right now not missing, but they were missing for hours or days. This is very, very serious because, first of all, when you are detained by a police officer, you have the right to a call to let your family know where you are, right? So if you don't have that right, people are not getting the right to call their families or to call their friends to tell them, I am detained in a police station, for example, or I am detained in a penitentiary center, for example their families assume they are missing. And this is a thing that is responsibility of the state. So the state cannot take off its responsibility in these cases. The other case, which is even even worse than the first one, is uh, what we have started calling an ex express kidnapping by the police. So the police does not have the right to make a people just go around in a car, in a police vehicle or a police car for hours and hours on end. This is a paralegal punishment that police members are issuing on people, right? So people are captured by police officers. They ride this person around in a police vehicle. And of course, in the vehicle, there is sometimes other kinds of violence aside from this retention or this uh, kid express kidnapping, which we are calling. Uh, which are, for example, beating, beatings of people, physical violence, even sexual violence, verbal violence. People are sometimes get stolen from by the police. They, they get robbed by the police. So in these cars, you are being held against your will and against a proper uh, legal way to retain a person. And these people get dropped in a very remote place, uh, I don't know, 24, 36, 48 hours later. Of course, this is also one of the, the missing persons uh, or, or one of the reasons that families say, uh, my son went out this morning and now he has been missing for two days. Right. This is part of the phenomenon. But another very grave part of the phenomenon is the people that we do not know where they are. We do not know if they have been taken by paramilitary groups. We do not know if they have been taken by police officers. Some of the bodies of people who were missing have started to appear. Uh, there is a whole investigation going on right now about bodies that started to appear in the Cauca River. And we do not know if those bodies belong to the missing persons who are right now reported in the Defensoria del pueblo. So this is a very important thing that should be right now being investigated. And I think that is one of the reasons why it's so incredibly important that the CIDH, I don't know how, how CIDH is said in English, but the Comisión Interamericana de Derechos Humanos, 
uh, that is why it is so important that they could enter the country because they need to be investigating on these issues that are pressing right now. Uh, we do not have time to wait for them to come in. We do not have time to wait for them to help the government clarify what is happening with missing people, what is happening with more than 43 people murdered by police officers, allegedly, with more than 22 uh, women harassed or raped by the police. We do not have time to wait for these issues to be clarified later. This is a pressing matter because as we speak, this violence is still growing. And as we speak, this is still happening in Colombia. As we mentioned, it, it's been a month now since the protest started here in May 28th. What is the next step? I know that's a difficult question, but yeah, wh where do we go from here? I think there needs to be, first of all, recognition from the government that state violence, such as police violence, such as uh, falsely incriminating someone, such as calling the legitimate right to peacefully manifest a crime, has to stop. And we need recognition from the government that there is something wrong with the police. There is an inherent violence to police structures. And I, I mean to be clear, it is not that every police officer is violent. It is not all cops are bastards. It is the police structure in itself is violent. And this is uh, forming people to be uh, violent. This is permitting that violent police officers stay on their chargers, stay in the police. This is uh, allowing for a whole uh, structure of violence to uphold police officers. And uh, there needs to be a recognition of this. There needs to be a recognition that 43 people killed in a manifestation is not normal and it is not uh, something that people deserve just because they were manifesting. Obviously also because in Colombia there is no death penalty, there is no people, there is no person who is by law or, or that can be legally killed in Colombia for even if they were committing a crime. And the police is obviously not the one to issue any kind of punishment on, on a citizen. So I think there needs to be a recognition of all of this if there is to be progress forward. Right. And our last question, I, Amelia, for people listening outside of the country, is there anything they can do to help if they're inspired to take action? What, what can they do? What do you think? Yeah, well, I think there's many things people can do. There's a lot of donations open, for example, for people who have been hurt by uh, any kind of state or parastate agent during the protests. There is also uh, ways to be hurt, for example, by representatives in the United States who can also pressure for international, the international agenda to, to put its eyes on Colombia. Obviously, for example, the United United States has been one of the biggest financiers of a Colombian war. So, of course, there is a lot to be done because uh, Colombia is not an island. Colombia depends, for example, for all of its war uh, machinery on the United States. Colombia is uh, right now a member of many uh, multilateral and international treaties and organizations. So I think there needs to be international pressure on the Colombian government to respect human rights, mm. basically. 
Well, after this, if there's any charities you have in mind or, or websites that people that you recommend people checking out, we're happy to include that in the link to the description of this episode. Of course, we're going to put the link of Temblora's in too. We think the work that you guys are doing is incredible. So thank you for that. And Amelia, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. This was a, a great conversation to kind of paint the picture to an outsider of, of what's happening in Colombia in this minute. Thank you. I hope uh, the sound is not so bad. I know you you wanted to have it uh, done presentially, but I'm not even in Bogota right now. So. No, no worries. Yeah, yeah, no, we know. Maybe maybe in the future, who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll speak again. Yeah. This was a great conversation. Of we really appreciate it. Temblores also has a donations page, if you want to include that. Perfect. Yeah, we'll definitely include that in the link. Absolutely. And of course, whatever else you need from us, we are available. That means a lot, Amelia. Thanks again. And like we said, we, we really love the work you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All the best. Bye. Bye. Por ti Colombia.